After Jesus said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, read these next couple lines with me, one of you will betray me. We know where this is going. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, which is interesting. We'll get to that. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this book, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, who would betray him. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread whom I have dipped it, when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the bread, the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. We're going to continue here in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Would you bow your heads in prayer this morning? Father, today we come before you and we offer you up our time and we ask that you would speak to us. God, we as a church, we declare that you are God and that there is no one and nothing like you. We believe in you and your sovereignty and your, your supremacy. We believe in Jesus who is equally God, sent into this world, the incarnation, flesh and blood, to walk in our shoes, to take that flesh to the cross, to bear our sins, to die and rise again. We believe that, Father. We believe in the Holy Spirit, equally God, who, when we give our lives to you, fills us, lives and dwells inside of us, helps us to understand your word, which we claim is authoritative truth, beyond our feelings or emotion or culture, we claim that scripture defines truth for us. God, we're your church. We gather together to lift high the name of Jesus. And so, Father, especially today, I ask that your spirit would speak to us. Father, soften our hearts to your words. Forgive us for where we have failed you. Convict us of where we've been wrong. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. With your eyes still closed and your head still bowed, I always want to take a moment to do this. Would you just take a moment to center yourself right now? Just to kind of really properly position where you are. You made the effort. If you're a parent, you know how much of an effort it is to get to church in the morning. You made that effort. Don't waste this time. Don't squander it. Don't waste this time thinking about lunch. Don't waste this time thinking about work. Don't waste this time thinking about money, or your position, or your portfolio. Take advantage of this time. 
focus it in on Christ. God wants to speak to you today through his word. Right now, I encourage you with your eyes closed, your heads bowed, would you offer this time to the Lord? Tell him you're listening. Invite him to speak right now. Amen. Well, we're continuing in John 13, uh, and we're walking through this passage, and it's already been a lot, you know? It's already been a whole lot. Uh, we're going to finish it out, though, in the next uh, week, a couple weeks, but we're in this overall series that we have uh, labeled the deconstructionary, and that's where we take two words and smash them together, deconstruction and revolutionary, deconstructionist. Jesus was truly a revolutionary in his time, in his day, but he's also an equally a deconstructionist. And by that, uh, what I specifically mean, to make a long story short, is Jesus is using scripture as the basis for, for critiquing not just the world, but more specifically, the way that the church went about being and doing and living out church. He was using scripture to critique and to challenge, if you will, the religious practices of the day. And we come to a very specific, very well-known, not specific, but well-known passage here in John chapter 13. And although you might not know or you may not claim to know a lot of scripture, or maybe you do, one of the people that you probably are in tune with is Judas. You know what I mean? Judas is one of those characters that, you know, uh, in, in scripture that, that we kind of have a little bit of a shiver run through our spine. Judas is known as the man who betrayed the Son of God. And, uh, you know, the reading of this teaching is, the reading of this passage today is not going not gonna to change that. There's no special or new revelation surrounding Judas. Judas is exactly that. He is the one who betrayed Jesus after walking with him for years, after lying next to him, camping out under the stars, seeing the miracles, seeing him walk on water, raise people from the dead. Judas thought it good to go and for a certain amount of money betray Jesus Christ. This is depraved at its lowest level. This is scary to even think about. Scripture mentions a number of times Satan entering into Judas and although we're not going to get exactly into that as much today, we do want to talk about the man Judas to a point. Here's what we know. Judas is one of the only disciples, or specifically the only disciple, who is not from Galilee. And so there's a culture around the Galileans, and Judas does not share it. He's kind of the outsider to a degree. But, but understand this. Judas was, was not somebody who everybody kind of looked at as like the criminal. I know he's depicted as that, you know, whenever you watch the Jesus movies, which, by the way, those are so interesting, <laughs> so interesting. Usually Jesus is floating around from place to place, and, you know, he he's usually has an English accent. It's, it's strange, but, uh, but Judas is always the, like, the nefarious, wicked, like, wizard-looking guy in the corner, you know what I mean? In every depiction of Judas, he's always got, like, the really sharp, pointy beard and the sharp mustache, you know? He's always in the corner. I'm not saying that's true. Judas was well-received by the other disciples. Judas was a one of the 12. He was in the, if you will, the greater outer circle of Jesus's crew. And even in the moment when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, it's not like everybody looked and be like, clearly it's Judas. 
People didn't do that. They were like, well, who could it be? Who would it be? Who is it going to be? Is it going to be me? In fact, you see a little bit of intrepidation from Peter himself and leaning over to John. A scripture defines John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, we would maybe think that John is making this claim because he wrote the book of John. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, clearly I'm the one that Jesus loved. I'm going to put that in there. But other scripture calls him that as well. And because he is this disciple that Jesus loved, and, 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 and don't get too twisted on that, but what, what he really means by that is John was very close to Jesus. He was often following him. He was also around him. He's one of the first disciples that Jesus called. And so John is with Jesus all the time. Peter leans into John and says, hey, John, because positionally he's sitting next to him. Other gospels go on to, to talk through exactly positionally where these disciples were seated at this time, which is very interesting and very important. Peter leans over to John and says, John, can you ask Jesus? Can you ask Jesus who this, who's going to betray him? And I have to kind of think it's because Peter already knew that he had the capacity to betray Jesus. I have to think that there was a little bit of a nerve, a nervousness about Peter. Peter also does go on to betray Christ. Three times, by the way. After Jesus says, you'll betray me. And Peter says, no, I won't. Jesus like, yeah, yeah, you will. Like later on today, you will, right? Never, Lord. And then he betrays him. Fascinating study, if you ever want to jump into it. The study in the, in the, in the um, similarities between Peter and Judas. In fact, Peter, the, different, the main difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter came back. There is strong biblical evidence to the fact that if Judas would have returned to Jesus and said, I confess, I am a sinner, I betrayed you, I have to think biblically on how Jesus treated Peter that Jesus would have forgiven Judas. The difference was they lacked an understanding of the relationship. Judas thought that what he had done was so abhorrent, so bad, so awful, that he could not come back to Jesus, maybe because he thought, Jesus would never accept me. Peter, on the other hand, <laughs> call it arrogance, call it stupidity, call it whatever, came back. He came back to Jesus, and Jesus literally in the moment just forgave him. Now, what's interesting about this interaction with Jesus, and the Gospels will, will show us this, it gives us the positional seating of Judas to Jesus in this moment. And what's interesting about that is on this evening, Judas is sit, seated in the, what's called the seat of honor. He is sitting right next to Jesus in this moment. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. They say, who is that going to be? And, and Jesus whispers, if you will, over to John. Notice, not the whole group, not the whole team, right? Not everybody is hearing this. It's more of an interaction between Jesus and John. Hey, who I, whoever I, I dip this bread, whoever I give this to, that is who is going to betray me. And we know that because Judas quickly gets up. Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, go do it. Go do it quickly, right? Judas gets up and leaves the room, and notice none of the disciples really know why Judas leaves. They're not like, oh, clearly that's who it is. They don't say that. They think, well, he's got the money, so maybe he's going to buy food for the feast, or maybe he's going to you know, make some dinner reservations. You know what I mean? Maybe he's, but Judas gets up and leave, even, leaves, even though he's in the seat of honor. And the fact that he has the seat of honor uh, really says a lot about Jesus. And I, and I we're going to get into something else here and kind of shift this a little bit on this teaching of deconstruction, but I really want us to understand this. Jesus, specifically in chapter 13, in our first portion, our second portion, all the way up to 21, notice what he is doing. He is consistently making a personal appeal to Judas. 
He is literally, without telling anyone else, in no uncertain terms, saying, it's not too late. You can come back now. It's not too late. One of you will betray me. In essence, Jesus is like, you don't have to, though. You can't go too far. I know you've solidified it most likely in your brain, but I'm right here. I haven't moved. I've still opened this chair for you. The seat of honor is right here. I want you to think about that in your life. Clearly think about that in your life. Because how often in our walk of life do we do things that we think, I'm too far gone, I can't come back, Jesus would not accept me, Jesus doesn't necessarily even want to love me anymore, and what I'm telling you is the life of Judas, and specifically chapter 13, says something different. You are not too far gone. If you are still hearing the words of the gospel, you are hearing the beckoning words of Christ saying, I'm right here, and the seat of honor is welcome for you. If Jesus can offer the seat of honor to even the most depraved, betraying sinners, how much more does he offer it to us? How much more, church, does he offer it to you? How much more does he make it open for you? Now, let's pause on that. There's another teaching for this, for this passage with, with Judas, for sure. But I want to, in the vein of our topic, the deconstruction, I want us to notice something. And I... And I think it's very interesting. In time, we do not have enough time today to walk fully through it, but I do want to get to it. And, it's, and it's, I think it's very challenging. In fact, in, in walking through this and even praying through this this morning, someone said, hey, you ready, for, you ready to preach today? I was like, yeah. And they're like, is it going to be a, a tough one? I'm like, I don't think the Christians are going to like it. I don't think the Christians are going to like it because it hurts. It hurts me. probably going to hurt you to a large degree. And I don't mean that with any meanness in my heart. It's just... It's challenging. Um, look at verse 34 and 35, very telling. It says this, look at this in verse 34. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Then verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment. Let me hear you say new commandment. new commandment. So whenever we see Jesus saying truly, truly, or maybe depending on what version you use, verily, verily, right? Truly, truly, or you've heard it said, but I tell you, or Jesus saying a new commandment. What Jesus is doing is deconstructing. He's deconstructing. He's working off of a presupposition that religious people have, and he's beckoning, beckoning them back to a deeper understanding of God's word, which he is going to use to critique the current culture or structure of church or religiosity. So Jesus in this moment is deconstructing, and I want you to understand he's about to deconstruct us today. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Okay, nothing new here. Just as I have loved you. Okay, a little harder. You are also to love one another, verse 35, and he goes on, and he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Read this with me now. If you're in this room, read this. If you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If, if, that's a big if. How are people to know that we're followers of Jesus? Predominantly, if we have love for one another. Let's define one another. The world, no. People who hate Jesus, no. The church of Jesus Christ, one another. The person you're sitting next to. 
The world knows that you're a follower of Jesus by how you love the people in your immediate community of your church. Jesus's life is the basis of this commandment, by the way. He puts all of this, all this theological weight and how we go about loving one another on the back or the basis of his life. Well, how have I loved you? That's how you're to love each other. Wow. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for setting the bar so, uh, so low there. How have you loved? And then he goes on to take the next and greatest step of love, which is to offer his life willingly as a sacrifice for the world. I want to give you this quote by this man named Brennan Manning. He says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And church, I'm going to lean in here in the next 13 minutes that I have with you. So please buckle in and hold on and take some notes because we must get this. We must understand this. A couple of weeks ago, we walked through this understanding of deconstruction, and we listed some external and internal uh, factors as to why people deconstruct their faith, which is to say, why people walk away from Jesus in the church. And although, of course, there are outliers to this, you know, different reasonings, we can't, you know, ca- encapsulate all of them, I do want to let you know this. The number one reason people deconstruct their faith is because of wounds they've sustained from another Christian. The number one reason that people deconstruct their faith is because of wounds they have sustained. And you could even say from a church or another Christian. And you're like, I don't know if I believe that. That's fine. It's not even close. It's not even close by a little. It's the margin of reasoning. The the margin is, is gigantic. When you begin to interview and talk and discuss why people walk from their faith, there is almost always a story of being hurt, burned, judged, rejected, or excommunicated. It is in the narrative almost every single time. It is the number one reason why people walk away from Jesus. Which church is to say, honestly, a lot of the time, why people don't follow Jesus is because of followers of Jesus. Now take that in for a moment and before you say, not me. If you find yourself saying, not me, that's not me, it might be you. One of the symptoms of being an arrogant religious person is the inability to receive criticism from God's word. And so in this moment, when I, as your pastor, tell you that the number one reason people walk away from Jesus is because of the followers of Jesus, and you say, well, that ain't me, you're missing the point. You are missing the word. You may be the very person, well, I don't like this. I don't like it either. You know why? One day I have to give an account for this church. The number one reason why people are walking away from Jesus. Christians walking away from Jesus is because of his bride? Is because of the thing that he laid his life down for? It's very difficult to swallow 
And it's very hurtful. And I want to say this. When a church ceases to be a place of forgiveness, love, grace, and mercy, that church ceases to be a church. And I know this gets a little scary, especially for some of us older folks. I'm, not, I'm, I'm 40. I'm not considering myself to be really old till I'm like 50. But, <laughs> some of you, hey, we don't make those hand motions in church. Please don't do that to me. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> I know this gets a little scary. Why? Because we live in a land of tolerance. And you think that I'm saying when we become a tolerant church, then that's a good thing. I'm not talking about tolerance. What I'm talking about is love. What I'm talking about is grace. What I'm talking about is mercy. What I'm talking about is forgiveness. See, you can love individuals while also not condoning their sin. Jesus did this all the time. And the religious people of Jesus' day didn't understand it either, which is why they said, oh, he's a friend of sinners. Oh, he's an alcoholic. Oh, he's the guy that hangs out with those people. They didn't understand that Jesus didn't come to help people who were already well. He actually came to help people who were sick. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but rather to offer life. And this is the difference that we see in Jesus' time and time and time again. And when a church ceases to be a place of forgiveness, love, grace, and mercy, that church ceases to be a church. And I want to bring up a passage that I've read before. We've talked about it before, but it needs reiterated. In Matthew chapter 18, this is a very interesting passage that is often taken out of context. Look at this in verse 15. And I want you to know I'm specifically talking to Christian people, quote, Christian people today. Very specifically. So if you are classified as somebody, if you identify as a Christian, can we say it that way? Um, <laughs> then, uh, then this is for you. In verse 15, this is how we've classically been trained to, to confront and talk to people in our community. If your brother sins against you, this is Jesus, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to him, you've gained a brother. All right, well, what if he doesn't? Well, if he does not listen, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, watch this now, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is, in other, in other words, to say, as an unbeliever. Gentiles outside of the faith, tax collectors, everybody hated them, okay? <laughs> Basically, the lowest position that makes a lot of money. They didn't like them, okay? Think IRS. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you work for the IRS, God loves you too. Um, the, seat, the seat of honor is right here. Uh, anyway. And so classically how we have interpreted this passage is like, hey, if, you have sin, if somebody has sinned and they're a follower of Christ, you go to them and, and you tell them, hey, you've sinned. You've sinned against me. I want you to get this right. If they, you know, if they push you away, then you take another person with you who's in the faith and you go confront that person. And then if not, you really go to leadership in your church. And then if, and if they don't listen to that, they're still obstinate. No, get out of here. I'm not listening to you. Then it says we treat them as a Gentile or as a tax collector, which is to say we treat them as an unbeliever. Now, here's where we get this wrong. We have interpreted this classically. The church has said, well, if they don't listen to you, then you and push them out and you completely excommunicate them. Why? Because that's how we treat unbelievers? How, church, are we to treat people who don't know Jesus? Are we to disregard them? Are we to hate them? Are we to push them away? No. We are to show that much more love to them. We are to approach the conversations in a different way, understanding, well, clearly, this individual doesn't know Jesus. They don't have the correct litmus test on what's sin and not sin. 
And so we approach it from a different perspective. But we have taken it to say, well, I went to them and didn't listen. I took somebody else and they didn't listen. We brought it up to our church and they didn't listen. So what do we do? We kicked them out of our community. We stopped talking to them. We, we closed down communication and we pushed them away and built up a wall. And I want you to know, because we have done that, people have deconstructed their faith. People have walked away. People have been hurt and burned and become embittered. And I want you to understand that, that is our fault. It's not the devil's fault. You can't blame that on Satan. I know that we want to because the devil's behind every rock, tree, and bush, and we want to blame it on him. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, you made you do it. The depravity inside of us made us do it. My pride and arrogance made me do it. We are cannibals oftentimes as a church. We cannibalize people around us. We eat them alive. We bury wounded individuals. We pick up the shovel and dip it into the dirt and throw it on their casket while they're screaming to let them out. And we walk away thinking that we're justified and thinking good about ourselves. How dare us? That is not the church that Jesus died for. Not even close. The evidence is shown by him opening up the seat of honor to Judas, beckoning to him, Judas, 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 Judas. Jesus in his supremacy and his sovereignty knew that Judas would betray him and yet somehow continued to make pleas to Judas to not betray him. We don't do that. John chapter 3, we know verse 16. Thank you, Tim Tebow. But, 17, Jesus said, for, the, for God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn it, condemn the world, but in order that through him, the world might be saved through him. We're to emulate Jesus, church. Should we condemn the world? Now, here's where we get it twisted. You can swing the pendulum all the other, uh, other side and not call out sin or accept everything. Oh, everything's fine, everything's good. Scripture's not saying that at all. We're not talking about tolerance. We're talking about Judges. And understand this, by the way, this specifically, John chapter 3, verse 17, is talking about the first arrival of Jesus. We know, and we've talked through the last couple weeks, that Jesus is going to return. Amen? Amen? Okay. And in the second coming, it's going to be a lot different than the first. In the first, he's come to bring grace, and the second, he comes to bring judgment. Well, I'm supposed to be like Jesus. Okay, can we just, just say this? You are no one's Messiah. Me neither. I've got a little bit of a Messiah complex. But you are no one's savior. Equally, you are no one's judge. Now, we think we are. Oftentimes, we think we are. But I got to say this. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to emulate him. I want to put on my belt of truth, which is a person, Jesus, John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. I want to be like Jesus in everything I do, how I interact with my kids, how I interact with, with friends, how I interact with, with you, how I teach his word. I want to be like Jesus. But even after trying to be like Jesus, you've got to understand, I'm not Jesus, and you're not Jesus. I am not your Messiah. I am not your judge. That is God's word, and specifically Jesus Christ. And yet, we judge. And you know who we judge? Who do we judge? Our brothers and sisters. Oh, we judge. Oh, we judge and we gossip and we talk ill and we mask it as prayer requests. And we talk. And we go behind their backs and we throw little darts 
and we hurt them. I want you to understand, when you judge someone, you judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. And there is so much dismissal of people, and we justify it by the type of lifestyle they walk. Or, well, they've been divorced. Did you hear they were divorced? Did you hear what happened in the divorce? Well, I heard this about the divorce. Well, I heard they used to be an addict. I wonder if they're still an addict. You know, I saw him at the gas station the other day, and he was acting a little strange. People in our community, people who are followers of Jesus, people who are trying to walk the narrow road right alongside of us, and we begin to judge them, and we dismiss them as people. We dismiss them. Church, right now there is a battle for the hearts and souls of men and women and children all around you. This world is calling into question gender. Your very basic biology. And we think this is probably the best time for us as a church to cannibalize each other. <laughs> this is probably the best time for us to, to talk smack about our friends and our... What are we doing? doing and people continue to say you know what i went to a church the biggest group of hypocrites i ever met in my life liars and cheaters and they hurt me they talk trash about me and here i don't have much time left but i want you to understand judging it reflects an ignorance of your own sinfulness every time you judge it shows that you are ignorant of the sin and the sinfulness that is within you. Once again, there is a time to call out sin. I'm not saying that. Call out sin. Scripture's given us the understanding. Go to a person one-on-one. -on -one. Take two people with you. Go and talk with the leadership of your church. And if they still don't respond, then how do we act? Hey, I don't know that they know Jesus. We don't go around spreading that, but we spend time now approaching them in a different way. We don't wash our hands of them. We don't accept sin, but we do love the people who are walking through it. And, and the biggest challenge is this, biggest challenge. Because when we talk about judgment, I want you to know there's an antidote to it. And the antidote to judgment, watch this now. Before we put this up here, I want, I want all of your attention. Are you listening to me? The antidote, antidote to judgment is the gospel. It's the gospel, 100%. And so my biggest question for you today is this. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the gospel? Last week, my biggest challenge for you was this. How are you and Jesus? You talking to him? Spending time with him? Now my big question for you is this. Have you forgotten the gospel? Clarify that a little bit. Jesus came into this world for people who could not even have the ability to receive him apart from God's hand. He raised them to life. Jesus died on a cross that was meant for me, took sins that were mine, exchanged them for his righteousness. That's what I got, his righteousness. He died and rose again. Have you forgotten the gospel? Have you forgotten the gospel? Here's a couple signs that maybe you have forgotten the gospel. You're more enraged over somebody's sin than you are embarrassed about your own. You fail to forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ. We confuse forgiveness and trust. I understand that just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean you gotta trust them again. 
but it does mean you need to forgive them. Forgive them on what? Forgive them on the basis that Jesus Christ forgave you. How did Jesus forgive you fully? Were you deserving? I wasn't. At the right time, God sent Christ into this world to die for the ungodly. That's me. He forgave me not on the basis of what I've, of what I've done, good and bad. He forgave me on the basis of his love for me. We're called to forgive. Peter says, well, how many times do I have to forgive? Jesus says over and over and over and over and over. Infinity. Seven times, seven times, seven times, seven. Infinity. We continue to forgive. A sign that you've forgotten the gospel. You cut off people. Excommunicate people who happen to not agree with you. You gossip These are signs we've forgotten the gospel, church. Here's my plea to you. Remember the cross. Remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus died for you. Remember that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for you. Remember who you were before Jesus. Remember that there is nothing good inside of you apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit. Remember that. We should be a church that is first in line to offer grace, love, redemption, and ministry to people. Why? Because we remember who we are. We remember that we're no good. And apart from Jesus, I am destined for hell, and rightfully so. I want to challenge you so much today as not just the church, but as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, this is equally challenging to me. That This hits us where it hurts. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes today if you would. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember. Help me remember the gospel. Help me remember the gospel. Help the gospel to penetrate not just my heart, but my emotions and my mind and my outlook and my interactions with people. This should be the first place, apart from Christ, that people run to for safety when they've fallen. This should be the first place that people run to when they're confused. This should be the first place that people run to when they're hurting, when they're scared. But we don't. Because we eat people alive. May we change that today. May the Holy Spirit solidify and shake that out of us today. Right in this moment, confess that sin. Repent of that sin. And open up the seat of honor.